chapter 9, verse 2, chapter 10, verse 8. Uh, it's page 219 in the Pew Bibles. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zerah, the son of Becheroth, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a name, a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost, and Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the hill area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in Arsax is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if someone went to inquire of God, they would say, Come, let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant. Come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water, and they asked them, Is the seer here? He is, they answered. He is ahead of you. Hurry now. He has just come to our town today, for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterwards, those who are invited will eat. Go up now. You should find him about this time. They went up to the town. As, as they were entering it, there was Samuel, coming towards them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines, I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the, ghetto, in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where this seer's house is? I am this seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on my way and tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, do not worry about them. They have been found. And to whom all is the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? Saul answered, But am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel, and is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? Then Samuel brought Saul and his servants into the hall and seated them at the head of those who were invited, about thirty in number. Samuel said to the cook, Bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. 
So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, Here is what has been kept for you. Eat, because it was set aside for you for this occasion, from the time I have said, I have invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured on it Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, What shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gilbia of God, where there is a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them. And they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever um, your hands finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. All right, thank you for that. It's a long passage, and we're actually covering all of chapters uh, 9 and 10 as well in the sermon. Uh, let me pray for us as we resume our series on 1 Samuel. Uh, Lord Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you clearly speak to us uh, by your word, and we thank you that we see that clearly in uh, 1 Samuel, uh, but ultimately in Christ, who is word become flesh. Uh, Father, as we uh, come together now, uh, please grant us uh, humility and wisdom and insight that as we get to know Saul, we might cling on to Christ evermore. For you ask in his name. Amen. Now before I went to Bible college, I worked at Telstra. Um, I was in IT architecture. On my first day, my boss took me around to meet uh, the various uh, people in the department, including all the heads of departments. Um, there's a, p- a person that my boss introduced me to uh, that I particularly remember because my boss paid special attention to him. Uh, let's call him Frank. Uh, so what's so special about Frank? Uh, well, he was a senior manager of an extensive portfolio which included the head of cybersecurity for Telstra. Uh, or, uh, my boss was particularly uh, proud of recruiting Frank, not only because uh, he was the best in the business, but because my boss managed to poach him from Optus. Uh, I have to say, when I met Frank, uh, you immediately think computer geek. Uh, you see, he didn't wear the uh, suit and tie of a senior manager of a businessman. Uh, he dressed like a geeky computer <coughs> hacker. 
uh, who still lived in his parents' basement. Now, I'm sure he didn't, but that's what he looked like. Uh, um, and he was the exact person that Telstra needed at that time. What Telstra needed and wanted was a computer geek who were about to protect Telstra's intellectual property and all their customers' details. I mean, we only have to think back a couple months ago when Optus and Medibank Private was hacked uh, to know how important cybersecurity is. Now, I didn't work directly with Frank, but I worked with his team. And a couple months into the project that we were working on, uh, we were told that Frank got the sack. Uh, I couldn't believe it. Telstra's highly priced cybersecurity expert, the best in the business, was sacked. So why? Why was he sacked? Well, it turns out that even though Frank was the best in the business, he rarely showed up to work, uh, which explains why whenever I passed his office, he wasn't there. Uh, in fact, he hardly managed his team at all. You see, Frank had everything you'd want as head of security. His CV was imp as impressive as it gets, and he had the skills to develop an imp uh, impenetrable security Telstra needed. But Frank's heart wasn't aligned with Telstra's needs. Frank's needs came first, and then Telstra's, and so Telstra had to let him go. Now, have you ever met someone like that before? Someone who appears to have everything you want, but falls short of everything you need. Maybe it was that boyfriend or girlfriend you had when you were at school, but when you got to know them, they weren't everything you thought they were. Or maybe it was someone you employed, they had a great CV, you gave them the job, but they weren't very committed to the job. Well, today we're going to meet someone like that, and his name is Saul. Now, I know it's been a while since we started our series on 1 Samuel, so let me remind you of the situation some 3,000 years ago in Israel. So just before Samuel came onto the scene, there was a crisis of leadership. But everyone did as they pleased, like there was no rule of law. We see this summarized at the end of the book of Judges. Uh, chapter 21, verse 25 says this, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so from time to time, you see, God had sent Israel judges. But the author implies here that the solution to Israel's problem, Israel's leadership crisis, was that of a king. But before a king is anointed by God, a transitional leader is appointed by God. A leader not like the judges from before of old or the kings of new, but a transitional leader like Moses, who serves as judge, priest, and prophet. And his name is Samuel. Now, by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, the preceding chapter of where we're going to start our, uh, resume our series today, Samuel's been a great leader. A leader that Israel has needed, but he's now old. And we're told in chapter 8, verse 3, so please have your Bibles open and have a look at verse 3. We're told that his sons are up to no good. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest gain, took bribes and perverted justice. You see, the best of leaders can have the worst of sons. And unfortunately, that was the case with Samuel and his sons. Like Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, Samuel's sons, Joel and Abijah, abused their positions of power. They were takers and not givers. They didn't administer justice, but perverted justice. So once again, there's a leadership crisis in Israel. The peace and prosperity, security 
of the years under Samuel were in jeopardy. And this made the Israelites nervous. And so the elders of Israel came with, up with a solution, not by seeking a new judge to rule over them, but by demanding a new government to be formed over them. So chapter 8, verse 5, they said, the elders of the Israel said to Samuel, the prophet, priest, and judge, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now there are two problems with this request. The first is that they already have a king. Who's that king? Well, God is their king. And so by requesting a king, they're in effect rejecting God as their king. That's the first problem. The second problem is that they want a king like the other nations. But God saved them so that they're not like the other nations. They're meant to be a holy nation, a kingdom of priests. And so they're rejecting God. They're rejecting by being the people that God has saved them to be. And so how do you think God will respond to that? Well, surprisingly, God tells Samuel to listen to them, to give them what they want, a king like the other nations. And since chapter 8, we're left wondering, who's going to be this king? Well, today's passage answers this question. This king is Saul. Now, uh, Saul is, uh, was the son of Kish, a Benjamite, a man who had all the traits of a king like the other nations. Uh, and so today's passage, have a look at it with me in chapter 9, verse 2. Uh, Kish had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no, more, no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. Uh, but, but Saul isn't just an impressive man. He's also a good son. So when his dad's donkeys go wandering, his dad tells him, go and find them. And he does. Uh, verse 3, Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. Now if you've been reading 1 Samuel, be thinking, wow, this is really refreshing. This is wonderful. Because when you read of Eli's sons, they abused their power. When you read of Samuel's sons, they took bribes. But here you have the son of Kish, who does what he's been told. He goes and looks for his dad's donkeys. In fact, he doesn't just listen to his dad, he genuinely cares for his dad. And so when Saul's gone for a little while looking for the donkeys, he begins to worry for his dad. What a good son. Verse 5, when they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. Uh, up until this point, Saul's clearly the envy of every parent, isn't he? He's impressive. He's obedient. He's caring. He's a son who would get a million followers on Instagram, yet he would still call his mum every day. He's the son who uh, people look up to, yet he would still listen to his dad. You see, from face value, Saul ticks all the boxes. He's a man like no other in Israel, but also a man who could fill the shoes of a king like the other nations. So how does this impressive young man become king of Israel? 
Well, what follows now is a series of coincidences that lead Saul to Samuel.、Uh, let me mention a few of them. In verse six, they just happen to be in a district where there's a man of God.、Uh, in verses eleven to twelve, when they get to the town, they see young women heading to a well. To draw water, and so they ask these women if the if the seer, the prophet, is in town. And the young women tell them that yes, there is a prophet in town, and in fact, he's just arrived today. And then in verse fourteen, as they enter the town, at exact moment as they enter the town, Samuel's there, coming towards them. And so, what are the chances of these things happening? Well, on the very day they want to look for a prophet, a prophet is in town. And it's none other than Samuel himself. But what we're told from verse fifteen is that these aren't coincidences at all; they happened according to God's word. So, chapter nine, verses fifteen to sixteen. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel: About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked on my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, "This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people." Now, these couple of verses are really important for us to remember as we continue to study one Samuel and look at the life of Saul, because it sets the agenda for God's anointed, who they are and what they are to do. And the first thing to note here is that God refers to Israel as my people not once, not twice, but four times in these few verses. You see, even though God will give Israel a king like the other nations, God's not going to let His people become like the other nations. They're His people, and they will remain His people regardless of the king that will rule them. He's committed. He's committed to them, even if they've rejected him as their king. It's like a parent who doesn't give up their children, no matter what they do or what they say. And the second thing is this: as impressive as Saul is, he's got a big job ahead of him, and so we're left wondering: is he cut out for it? Will he obey God's word as ruler over God's people? You see, he's an underking. A king who must obey the true king, God, through his prophet, who will give him God's word. Will he obey God's word? And second, will he deliver them from the hand of the Philistines, from the enemies of God? Well, we don't have to wait long before we find out what kind of king Saul is. Because what we see in the rest of today's passage is how Saul fails again and again, even before he's declared king. You see, the people of Israel wanted a king like the other nations, and that's what God's giving them—a king like the other nations, an impressive young man. And what's a king like the other nations apart from good looks and and, and a presence and stature? Well, like the other nations, he'll be spiritually lacking. He wouldn't have any care for the God of Israel or His word. He would do as he pleases. Like Frank, who came from、uh, before Telstra, so Saul will come before God and His word. 
And we see this in three ways in the rest of today's passage. First, we see immediately that Saul doesn't even recognize God's prophet. Notice in verse 18 when Saul meets Samuel for the first time. Even though Samuel recognizes Saul, uh, this nobody from the tribe of Benjamin, yet Saul doesn't recognize Samuel, who is a somebody known throughout all of Israel. Verse 18, Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, Would you please tell me where the seer's house is? And Samuel replies in verse 19, I am the seer. You see, it's a bit strange that Saul didn't recognize Samuel. Because we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 20, that all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized Samuel as a prophet of God. And so if everyone in Israel recognized Samuel as the prophet of God, then how come Saul doesn't even recognize Samuel as a prophet of God? In fact, Samuel's been an Israel judge for years. He's now old. So you think everyone would know him by now, but not Saul. Why is that? I mean, I know he didn't have TV or Facebook. He couldn't, uh, maybe he couldn't uh, put a name to a face. Uh, but even so, Samuel was on his way to offer a sacrifice in the high, high place. And so I'm sure he wasn't wearing a, a, a T-shirt and tracky axe, but clothing fit for a priest who's about to offer a sacrifice to God. Now, I know we could be reading too much into it, but maybe we're already being told that this impressive young man Saul is not a man interested in the affairs of God. You see, if you were into politics, you would know who the prime minister is, at least. If you were into investing, you you'd probably wouldn't know who Warren Buffett is. And if you were into the AFL, then you'd know Hawthorne's the greatest team of all time. That, that's a joke. I don't follow AFL. But Saul doesn't recognize Samuel. Saul doesn't recognize the great prophet, the famous leader of Israel's people since the time of Moses. Is it because he doesn't have any care for the kingdom of God? Second, Saul disobeys God's prophet, which is the same as saying he disobeys God's word. So in chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel anoints Saul, which is a huge moment in the history of Israel. He's anointed as the first king, the first ruler over all of God's people. And so to avoid any doubt in Saul's mind that he is God's chosen, Samuel confirms it with three signs. The first sign is that two men near Rachel's tomb will tell him that the donkeys have been found. The second sign is that three men at the great tree of Tabor will give him two loaves of bread. And the third sign is that he'll receive the Spirit of the Lord at Gibeah. Three signs that are very specific, that are very unusual, that will be fulfilled on that day. Now, there are two things at Gibeah that he will see. The first is that when he goes there, and he would have known this already, that there's a Philistine outpost. What that means is that the Philistines, the enemies of God, have already camped and set up camp in Israel. They're losing the battle against the enemies of God. Secondly, at Gibeah, 
Saul will find prophets prophesying, a procession of prophets. And when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul, he'll prophesy with them. Now when these three signs are fulfilled, Saul's given one job to do. One job in chapter 10, verse 7. Once these signs are fulfilled, Samuel tells him, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Do whatever your hand finds to do. That's what he's to do. Now after Saul leaves Samuel, all these things are fulfilled. We see that in chapter 10, verse 9. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart, and all these signs were fulfilled that day. And so all that's left for Saul to do is to obey God's one command, to do what your hand finds to do. But what happens next? He goes to the high place and has a chat with his uncle about the donkeys. So let's summarize. After meeting Samuel, the great prophet, priest, and judge, in the order of Moses for the first time, after being appointed as the first king over all Israel, after experiencing firsthand the fulfillment of three extraordinary signs, and even encountering the Spirit of God directly on that day, what does Saul do? Basically nothing. He goes to the high place and chats to his uncle about donkeys. Is that what it means to do what your hand finds to do? Is that what it means to be God's anointed? To be rule of God's people? To have a good old yarn with your uncle about donkeys? Well, if you don't think so, then you'd be right. So, so what does it mean? Well, what does it mean to do what your hands find you to do? Well, the last time that the phrase was used in the Old Testament in the narrative of God's history is in Judges chapter 9, verse 33. Now, I've got it up on the screen for you because in the translation we use, it's been interpreted for us what that phrase means. So in the ESV, which is a more direct translation, you see, do to them as your hand finds to do. And what's the interpretation? In our translation that we use in NIV 11, it seize the opportunity to attack them. It's said in the context of God's leader facing the enemies of God. So Abimelech in Judges chapter 9 was told to do what his hands finds to do. And what did Abimelech do? He went to fight the enemies of God. So what is it? meant for Saul to do what his hands finds to do. After all, he, just, he was just told by Samuel that he's to rescue Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He was just led by God straight to a Philistine outpost in Gibeah. The Spirit of God had just powerfully descended upon him and empowered him. And the best he can do is, a, is to have a chat to his uncle about donkeys. But what did the judges before him do when the Spirit of God descended upon them? Well, when the Spirit of God came on Othniel in Judges chapter 3, verse 10, he went to war to, against the enemies of God. When the Spirit of God came on Jephthah, in Judges chapter 11, verse 29, he went to fight the enemies of God. 
And when the Spirit of God came on Samson in Judges chapter 15, verse 14, he grabbed a jawbone and killed a thousand men. And so what do you expect when the Spirit of God descends on a leader of God? The power of God descends on him by the Spirit of God. And right before him, he sees the Philistine outpost. All the judges before him would have gone to fight and to rescue Israel from the hands of God's enemies. But he doesn't do that. He goes up to a high place to have a good old yarn with his uncle about donkeys. And when his uncle asks him about what's going on, he doesn't even mention the kingdom of God at all. You see, Saul isn't just someone who's uninterested in the things of God. It appears he's not at all interested in rescuing the people of God either. He's physically impressive, but spiritually lacking, like the kings of the other nations. Third, Saul hides from God's prophet. Now, this happens at a public ceremony. Samuel gathers the people of Israel together at Mizpah to announce God's appointed ruler. But when they look for Saul, he's nowhere to be found. Is that because he's now decided, actually, I better go and fight the Philistines. I better do my job. I better obey the prophet Samuel. Well, no, he doesn't. Well, where is he? Well, he's hiding behind the supplies in verse 22. It's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Why would the chosen king of Israel be hiding? Well, you might remember the story of Adam and Eve. You see, what did Adam and Eve do after they took the forbidden fruit and ate from the tree that they were not meant to eat? What did they do after they disobeyed God and his word? Well, they hid among the trees. And so when they heard God walking in the garden, what did they do? They hid among the trees. They hid from God because they were afraid and ashamed. They knew they disobeyed God. They were afraid and ashamed. And I wonder whether that's what's happening here. You see, Saul had just disobeyed God and his word through his prophet. And he knows it. But instead of admitting to it to Samuel to confess his sins, he hides because he's afraid and ashamed. He had one job to do and he didn't do it. And he's not willing to face the music just like the king of other nations. I mean, think about it. President Putin will never admit that his invasion of Ukraine was a mistake. President Xi will never admit his handling of COVID has been a disaster. Nor will Scott Morrison admit that taking secret portfolios as Prime Minister was a mistake. And so Saul won't admit he's done the wrong thing. Instead he hides. Do you do that with God? Now Samuel might know why Saul's hiding, but the people wouldn't know. And so when they find him, 
and see that he's a head taller than everyone else. They get excited because he looks like a king from other nations. And so they shout, long live the king. They love him, they embrace him because he's exactly what they ask for. An oppressive young man, the kind of king they asked for. But as you and I already know, Saul doesn't have a heart for the kingdom of God. And the more we read about Saul, the more we'll find out about him. And the more we'll see that he's like a king like the other nations. A king that we don't want. But Jesus is a king that we want and need. You see, on every level, Jesus and Saul are complete opposites. While Saul was an impressive young man, we're told in Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. While Saul refused to fight the Philistines after being empowered by the Spirit of God, Jesus went and got baptised. And the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. And what did he do immediately after that? He went to fight the great enemy of God. He went into the desert and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and fought with Satan and won. And while Saul didn't concern himself with the things of the kingdom of God, Jesus came to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. While Saul would willingly disobey God's word, Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane as he awaited his impending death. Not my will, but yours be done. While Saul hid amongst the supplies in shame for his disobedience, Jesus hung on the cross, naked, bearing our shame. And while Saul was embraced with the words, Long live the king, Jesus was rejected by the crowds as they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. You see, friends, Saul isn't the king we should ever want. But Jesus is the king we all need. So let's continue to look to Jesus, who's our king. A king like no other who died for us. Amen.